0: Following a message was recorded at Faith Fellowship, St. Pete, in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. So, good morning. Um, happy Mother's Day. Um, if I forgot to say it, anybody, I'm sorry. Uh, it's important. I think it's, uh, I think it's awesome that, um, that we have this time set aside to, to recognize mothers and that we have time set aside to recognize fathers and there's this cycle throughout the year that, that we get to be a part of and I think that's, I think it's special. So, um, the title of today's message is called The Big Catch and so, I'm, I'm going to talk to to those of you who like to fish first. And anybody out here like to fish? Yeah, I see some hands. So, h- how big was the last fish you caught? <laughs> uh, that so, the, the real question is, how big how big's that fish going to be tomorrow, or or in a year <laughs> from now? <laughs> so, um. I'm not a I'm not a fisherman. Um I've fished before but I I would by no means call myself a, a fisherman. But I can still tell a good fish story, right? And I think you don't have to be a fisherman to tell a, a good fish story. So the the thing I I, I mean by this is that the story or in in you know in the fish story the every time you tell it the fish seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So so why is that? Why does the fish get bigger and bigger? And bigger every time you tell it. Um, there, there's something in storytelling known as hyperbole. Have you guys heard of this? So in hyperbole, uh, you emphasize something. And in the fish story, what what gets emphasized? The fish. The size of the fish gets emphasized, right? So why does the size of the fish get emphasized? Well, um, it it's in order to draw attention to something or someone. So in the story, in the fish story, you're you're drawing importance to the size of the fish, right? So it's important that this fish that how how big it was, right? And and the reason it's important is because it gets bigger every time you tell it. But there's also something else. What about the act and ability to catch fish? Right? Does the does the increasing size of the fish also Display to the the listener the ability, the act, and ability uh, to catch the fish, right? So, so sometimes it's not always the size of the fish that that's the the real important thing. There, there's more to a story than that. So the passage we are going to read from this morning is Luke five one through eleven. So if you if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, the text is going to be up on the screen. And there's also Bibles in the seat backs in front of you, under, um, under the chairs. So if you want to grab one, we're going to read together. Again, Luke 5, 1 through 11, reading from the ESV. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, being Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret also the, the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out from them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into, into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, Master, And all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we we thank you for all things and we give you thanks in all circumstances. And Lord, in this moment, I just pray that the, the depth of the knowledge of the mystery of Jesus Christ would be revealed in some small way to us this morning, each one individually where they are at. Father, I just pray that, that the glory of salvation would just be present on our hearts, Lord, that we would understand that we didn't just need salvation one day, Lord, but we need salvation every day. We need a Savior every day, Lord, that we need you every moment of every day. And Lord, I just pray that we would humble ourselves in our understanding of what, of of who we think you are, Lord, that you would just um, glorify yourselves in our lives, uh, that we would be a living sacrifice. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. So, how many of you would consider yourselves students of the Word? Right. What What do students do in school? Take notes. <laughs> so, um, I've been I've been preaching this sermon to myself all week. And every time I preach it to myself, something new pops out. And so I, I'm, I've, I've included as much as I could possibly fit in here in the time frame that's given. But by no means am I exhausting the text. And by no means am I even, I feel, scratching the surface at some of the importance in here. So uh, that being said, this is going to be one of the ones that you're going to probably want to dig through throughout the week. And having notes to look back at would what I think would be beneficial for you. So there, there's a chronological issue here with some of the parallel passages, and I, I don't want to make a huge deal out of it, but I do want to make you aware of it as, as students of the Word. So the, the chronology of this passage is under some debate by scholars. The parallel passages for this can be seen in Matthew Eight, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, 18 through 20, and Mark 1, 16 through 20, which occur before Jesus heals the man with the unclean spirit in the synagogue. Um, the, that event is recorded in Luke 4, 31 through 37. Some scholars posit that because of the inconsistency, there may actually be two different encounters with Jesus and the fishermen on the shores of Lake Gennesaret. So some feel that there that there were two distinct fishing encounters, um, one being an informal call, and the other being a formal call to discipleship. And still, other scholars find that all three of these events parallel uh, a passage in John, John 1:35 through 42, where Jesus initially calls Peter and Andrew. So there's, there's a lot of different calls in the narratives. And so for our purpose and our time together, I'm going to treat the current passage in its intended context within the order of the Gospel of Luke. But I wanted to make you guys aware that there's more to, to look at and more to study here. And so the, the key is to be students of the word and do not be afraid to search the scriptures. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight a couple people in my uh, introduction. Uh, one of them, his name is Kenneth Bailey. Uh, Kenneth Bailey is a, a, a pastor who did many, many years of study and research at, in the Middle East and in Egypt. And he taught in, in England, and he became very familiar with a lot of the, the native people in native cultures in that time he can read um, syriac which is one of the first languages that the bible was translated into and so i I, i'm going to draw heavily at the beginning um, from him and his understanding so he, he thinks that luke did not write this story like this is not luke's story what he's doing is he's recording a passage he's recording a story that he heard Right and you and you you read at the beginning of Luke how he 's basically telling us he's giving eyewitness accounts right he's like he wasn't there, he wasn't walking with Jesus at the time, and so there's a there's an explanatory note in verse nine which um, Mr. Bailey describes as having that reason now one of the other reasons, and this is the big one which i I find to be amazing how what a student of the word he is, so there's something called the prophetic rhetorical template, and I doubt many have have heard of this um, until i studied i didn 't hear it i didn 't hear about it either, but what it is is it's composed of sorry seven inverted stanzas with a climax in the middle, so this is a writing style that has been around for a very long time, and it's found in Isaiah and Ezekiel, and in other parts of the, the Old Testament. And so what it looks like is right here. So what you have is you have A, B, C, D, A, B, C being topics that lead up to D, which is the climax, climax being in the middle, and then all of the points that come after it, C prime, B prime, A prime, point back to the original topic that was presented leading up to the climax. Do you guys understand the structure. And so this morning I am going to be presenting my topics in the order of the rhetorical template. So um, the first part, we're going to look at the, the setup and the context. You, and then here is the the order in which we're going to look at it after the setup. So we have a, a call to act in faith, respectful obedience, a physical miracle, and then the climax, the turning point, is the encounter of holiness. And then we see a spiritual miracle, repentance and surrender, and then a call to, to act in faith, and, but an in, in actual act in faith. So with that being said, we're going to dive into the passage. And all these notes are online. If, the, if it goes kind of quick, you guys can go back online and, and, and pull these notes down. So we're going we're gonna to look at this setup. So this is Luke 5, 1 through 3. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had got out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So the first thing we we see is that the crowd was pressing in on him, and he taught from a boat. So he he moved himself away from the crowd into a place where he could um, talk to all of them. So Jesus used the natural geography of the land. And so another New Testament scholar, his name is N.T. Wright. And by the way, um, I I pull from these uh, these authors, by no means do I... Categorically believe everything that they're saying, but I do feel that the Spirit works through people in in ways, and that we you know we should be learning from from people. And so, uh, he he lived in Israel for a while, and he taught in Israel, so he has a very good understanding of the geography. And in his book Luke for Everyone, he points out that, um, and this is a quote from his book: along the lake shore, close to Capernaum. There's a sequence of steep inlets, a zigzagging shoreline with each inlet forming a natural amphitheater. To this day, if you get in a boat and push out a little from shore, you can talk in a quiet, natural voice, and anyone on the slopes of the inlet can hear you clearly. He says, actually, more clearly than if you were right next to them on the shore. So the crowd expected to hear the word of God. And the message that Jesus gave that day was heard by many. The whole crowd heard him speak. We don't know exactly what he said in this message. Right? There there was a message that was given and then the text kind of skips to what happened after that message. Now one thing that I want to say that stood out was in the in the previous text jesus after coming from the synagogue healed peter's mother-in-law so it's interesting that jesus chose peter's boat to get into did did peter owe him anything <laughs> so there there's an interesting you know in in the middle east Hospitality is huge. If you're asked to come over to somebody's house to eat, it's not like you're being asked. It's like you're coming to eat at my house, and and they're really huge with with favors. If you do somebody a favor, it's it's, it's expected that if they ask for a favor in return, it's not like they're asking. It's like you're you're doing this, right? I need help. So, um, another interesting part of this. Is the, the Sea of Galilee is a fairly large lake. If I remember correctly from my studies, it's like 13 miles long from from top to bottom, and then it's about four four and a half or seven uh, wide, and it's in the shape of a harp. I don't know. There, there, it, there's a lot of um, the the original word for the sea was uh, comes from their word harp, which is interesting. So. With a, with a lake that large, they tend to have waves and there's also kind of like a changing of the seas a little bit. So going out in a boat and staying from shore and staying in one spot and able to teach, that would require somebody to keep the boat steady. And that's not going to be an easy task. You're going to have to work at that. So, so Peter was the one who was tasked with keeping the boat in one place so that Jesus could speak and we and we don't know how long he spoke but we do know that he now had a captive audience of one so real quick i want to talk about some of the different teaching modes of Jesus i found this really interesting so we we know that in some cases he spoke to many people so for instance on the on the mountainside the sermon on the mount Matthew five through seven, uh, and he spoke in synagogues that we saw back in, in Luke four. There was there was many there, and here, the boat off the lake of Gennesaret. He sp- he said he's speaking to the crowds, right? So we can assume that there's there's quite a few people there, but we also know that that Jesus took time to speak to just a few people. So the the woman at the well, in John four. In the, he spoke to the, the twelve in the upper room, the ones he he chose in John 14 through 17, and he also took time to speak to Nicodemus in John 3. So, in, so he, he he speaks to many, but he also speaks to few. Has he spoken to everyone? There, there's a message he gave on the cross. Which doesn't just speak to one or many. It speaks to everyone. Not just in heaven and on earth. But also under the earth. Uh, On Good Friday, Pastor Colin shared Psalm 22. And Jesus' last words on the cross were the opening and the closing line of Psalm 22. So... Even with his last dying breaths, what was he doing? He was he was teaching us. So he does not just teach us with his word, but with his life. So um with now now with the setup there for us, let us go into the the points that are drawn out in the template. So we're going to go into Luke 5, 4 through 5. It says, And we when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. So what we see here is we see a call to act in faith. At the time of the teaching, Jesus would have asked Peter to take him back to shore. But this is where the real teaching begins. He, He gave the words, but now he's going to do something special. God may call us to do things that did not make sense. And this is what happened to Peter. We may encounter resistance from our own understanding... So it's been pointed out by many scholars that fishing on the Sea of Galilee was done at night. It was not done during the day. Part of the reason is that the fish would not be able to see the nets because it's shallow in a lot of the regions, so they would do like a drag net type of approach. And so the fish couldn't see the nets as well at at night. And also um, he asked Peter to put out into the deep when everybody who fishes there knows that you fish in the shallows on the sea of Galilee or the lake Lake Gennesaret. because as as we read there were a lot of inlets coming in from the mountains so the the mountains had snow the snow-capped mountains there would be a lot of nutrients flowing down from the mountains that come into the shallows of the lake and that's where a lot of the fish would want to go to get these nutrients now, another thing that may have stood out to him was the fact that at this point, Jesus was, he was a carpenter and he had become a rabbi. He was a teacher. So what was a carpenter slash rabbi telling a commercial fisherman to, to fish? So let's examine the situation a little more closely. Peter and his friends were exhausted from fishing all night. They'd just finished cleaning their nets, and now Peter was being told how to fish from a carpenter, rabbi, and then they were being told to let out their nets during the day and in deep waters. So how does he respond? He uses the word master. He says, "Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets." So he he respectfully does what he's supposed, what he's asked to do. But the word that he uses here for master in the Greek it's epistates, and it means boss, chief, teacher, or master. They'll use that word oftentimes to refer to uh, some sort of government authority or like an employer, right, like your boss. So it refers to someone of authority. But we do see that Peter was willing to submit to Jesus' authority. Not because he thought he was going to catch anything, because it was the respectful thing to do. It was because you said so. So let's let's go on to the to the next part. I forget something. Excuse me for one second. My paper's printed out all weird. If I could show you, yeah. So we we saw. Um, the respectful obedience and so now we move on to the, the physical miracle so this is Luke 5 6-7 through 7. and when they had done this they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both boats or both both the boats so that they began to sink you can see the hyperbole a little bit in here so there was a physical miracle. There was a huge catch of fish. This was extraordinary, even supernatural, shown by the hyperbole. Peter may have had many questions come to him in the midst of the frantic struggle to get all the fish into the boats. Was this a lucky guess? How could Jesus know there were fish out here? I mean, he can heal people. He saw him cast out demons, and now this. What next? If he knew where the fish were, why not cash in on that instead of being a wandering teacher? So the grace of God filled the nets, not by any skill of the fishermen. So physical miracles show up all throughout the Old Testament as uh, prophesied to. So um, in, in Isaiah 41, 17 through 20 we read about how the lord caused the springs to flow into the desert he caused the trees to grow in the desolate land right he's so. the one who brought about these miracles now is the is the f- physical miracle is that the end of it is is that the end of god's glory so in, in jesus's ministry a physical miracle was many times accompanied by a spiritual miracle. As the incarnation of God in the flesh, conceived by the Spirit and born of a woman, Jesus was in a unique position to bring the two together, spirit and matter. And we're witness to this. So here's the turning point. See if you guys can find it. So this is Luke 5, 8 through 10a. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And so this is where I defer a little bit from um, Kenneth Bailey. He he puts the physical miracle as shown throughout the old testament at at the climax but i see something else here and this is the turning point at the very at the beginning of luke 5 verse 8 it says but when simon peter saw it what did he see what exactly did he see? I believe he saw holiness. I believe he, in that moment, he experienced the holiness of Jesus who who stood in front of him. So, let us, let us look at Isaiah. So, Isaiah also had a similar experience. So, this is Isaiah 6, um, in verse 1, Says that he saw the Lord high and exalted seated on the throne. And when witnessing all this, I'm, he says in verses five through eight Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I, have, I live among a, a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away for your, and, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me, and so there's a there's a lot of parallels between this passage in isaiah and and the one that we're currently reading so So who has done this right? Who performed this physical miracle? It wasn't the fishermen; they just dropped the nets they were respectful in obedience right they They walked in faith, but there was a spiritual miracle and and he realized that that the Lord did this alone. Peter came face to face with a person, capital P, Jesus, the Messiah, who challenged him at the core of who he, who he is, who he was. So let's look at the spiritual miracle. The, spirit, the, the physical miracle was the big catch of fish. But what was the spiritual miracle? It was a big catch of men. Men. So by the grace of God, Peter was filled, not by any power of his own, but by the power and the presence of Jesus' holiness, the holiness that was within him. So the three who were, the the main three that Jesus taught, he often pulled them aside, were Peter, James, and John, the so-called inner circle The ones taken by Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. They were the big catch of men. And the catch was going to get bigger as they went out to fish. So in in light of their witness, the three, the catch also applies to all those who they will reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's see how this relates to repentance and surrender. So the, the grace of God shined a light into Peter's life. And he could do nothing at that moment, like Isaiah, but repent and confess of his sin and fully submit to Jesus. The word he used here to refer to Jesus, Lord, is not the same word that he used to refer to Jesus earlier. Previously he referred to him as master, which is like boss, teacher. Now he's referring to him as Kairos. This Greek word word is used to translate the name of God in Hebrew as Adonai, which means Lord. God's rule and authority are represented by his lordship. And this rests ultimately upon his creation and his ownership of all things and people. Peter recognized his, his lordship. He was in control. So the dramatic shift of two names used by Peter highlights the internal shift that happened within his person. Now it was, because I believe and trust in you as Lord, not because I'm, do, I'm doing this because you said so as a boss. So interestingly, this is the first use of the word sinner in Luke's gospel. So let's let's look at the last point the the call to act in faith. This is Luke 5:10b through 11. And Jesus said to Simon, "Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men." And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So it was more of a command to act in faith rather than a call, but there was a, an actual act here you, there's a difference between the act the first part the inversion so knowing the the fragile condition of Peter's heart in his surrender Jesus tells him the what the first thing he says is do not be afraid and that's important because when you come face to face with holiness it's scary we recognize our sin we recognize our depravity how we live in a world that is unclean and we need to be cleaned, right? We, we need a savior every day, not just one day. So Jesus told them that they will still be fishing just for people and for life, not death. When you catch a fish, you take its life. When you catch man, you give it life. Him, sorry not an it you are not an it so they let go of their own understanding and left everything to follow our Lord Jesus Christ and so there's a hyperbole here The the hyperbole marks the significant impact that this event had on the lives of Peter, James and John so the question is did they really leave everything? what about their wives did they leave their wives or more ridiculously did they leave their clothes so you you guys see the hyperbole there so what does it look like to leave everything to follow jesus I'm going to tell you a very short snippet of this man's life, and uh, I would I would ask that if you have time that you look into it. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and his name's going to be up on the screen. Has, has anybody ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer before? I, I see a good amount of hands. Some of you probably haven't. So he was a German Lutheran pastor and theologian, and an anti-Nazi dissident and author. He was vocal in his opposition to Hitler's euthanasia programs and the genocidal persecution of the Jews. He was even persecuted by the German Christian church who aligned themselves to Hitler's nationalism. And he, was, he went on to form underground seminaries And at the, at the end, he even worked inside the German intelligence organization to help with the resistance. And then in, 19, or in April of 1943, he was arrested by the Nazi regime and put in a concentration camp. After being accused of a conspiracy against Hitler called Valkyrie, he was executed on April 9th. In 1945, this was two weeks before the U.S. soldiers from the 90th and 97th Infantry Divisions liberated the camp. Two weeks before the camp was liberated. So with his life as an example, we read this quote of his. When Christ calls a person, he tells them to come and die his book by the way is called the, he has a lot of books but the seminal work is called The Cost of Discipleship so we first die to ourselves in our old way of life in the flesh and for the flesh then we are resurrected with Christ and we live with him and for him a life in Christ can never be taken away not even through physical death in this, we hear the psalmist cry out, "O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like Peter, James, and John, followed Jesus' example and carried his cross. As Bonhoeffer was concluding, listen to this, he was concluding his final Sunday service at the Flossenbürg concentration camp. So within the concentration camp, he was still holding service. And he told a fellow prisoner, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. So, back to our our passage. That day, the message was given to many, but was only embraced by a few. The crowd was pressing around Jesus to hear the word, the word of God. But who actually heard the message that day? So, I have three application points for you. The first one is called encounter holiness. So, when you encounter holiness, you allow Jesus to go from teacher to Lord. This requires a reaction to the Spirit's conviction of sin, confession, and repentance. Have you heard enough to know that something's going on? You could be in church your whole life. right? You've seen things. You've seen people changed. But are you ready to put out into deep water and drop your nets? The second... Point of application, which um, has been especially meaningful to me uh, as I've studied through it more, is to be in a posture of need or weakness. I, I almost took this one out because I'm like, I, I don't know, but it, every time I thought about it, it just meant more and more. So I'm telling you, be in a posture of need or weakness. Jesus intentionally placed himself in a position of authentic need. Humility. He is the perfect example of humility. To the woman at the well, Jesus made an authentic request. Give me a drink. Here he got into Peter's boat. He said, I need you. I need you to put out from shore. Help me. Someone's worth is found where they are, not where you think they should be. Jesus approached Peter where he was in the boat. So we need to take time to help people individually, to to be with them. And we also, it speaks to being a resourceful fisher. Jesus is the ultimate fisherman. We are the bait, as Jimbo used to say with his hats. <laughs> we are a living sacrifice. So the third, the third application, I believe, is, is the most important. It's called the greatest miracle. Many consider physical birth to be the greatest miracle. But there is another birth created by God when one is made a new creation. Each person has a unique chance at a turning point or an in the beginning in their life as created by God like Peter had. Interestingly, understanding of the ancient Hebrew grammar reveals that either the most important part of a sentence is is written first or it's the verb. So when they would write their sentence, whatever is the most important part of the sentence is first. And they just understand how to read it based on that, or you put the verb. But in Genesis 1.1, it reads, In the beginning God created. The first word in the first sentence of the Bible is Bereshit, which means in the beginning. So neither... God, who you would think would be the most important part of this, the word, or the verb created, come first. So there's something especially important about beginnings when created by God. Salvation is the turning point or the beginning in a believer's life. It is the greatest miracle And it will have a profound impact on how you live the rest of this life. The life that's been given to us. Jesus, the incarnation of God in the flesh, is the only one who can unite the two, spirit and matter, in your person. As the band comes up, I'll I'll wrap this up. So my, my brothers and sisters... Let us never tire of meditating on the glory of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the power of his sacrifice on the cross. At this very moment, creatures in heaven cry out day and night and never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's what they do every moment for eternity. The choice to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can bring you spiritually from death to life, from a fisherman to a fisher of men. And so the question that we each ask ourselves is will we we be part of the big catch? Thank you guys. Love you all.